Welcome to the March 16th, 2023 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll discuss how azacytidine therapy influences the contributions of mutated HSC clones to hematopoiesis in MDS and CMML. Learn more about the risk of venous thromboembolism in patients with adult-type diffuse glioma and discuss the importance of 1P32 deletions as an independent and adverse prognostic factor in myeloma. We first examine data in the blood article entitled Contribution of Mutant HSC Clones to Immature and Mature Cells in MDS and CMML and Variations with Azacytidine Therapy by Anatina Schneg-Kaufman from the Lowry Cancer Research Center at UNSW Sydney in Australia and her colleagues. Somatic mutations in hematopoietic stem cells drive the progression to myeloid malignancies, including myelodysplastic neoplasms, or MDS, and chronic myelomonocytic leukemia, or CMML. Prior studies have shown that mutations branch out to establish the different clonal structures in HSPCs, but the contribution of specific clones to circulating mature blood cell types remains unclear. Ultimately, these mutations promote abnormal self-renewal of HSPCs and or block their maturation into normal myeloid cells. DNA hypomethylating agents, such as 5-azacytidine or decitabine, are the treatment of choice for patients with high-risk MDS and CMML who are not eligible for allogeneic bone marrow transplantation. Interestingly, studies to date have shown that hypomethylating agents can normalize blood counts without a commensurate reduction in disease burden. In vitro colony assays to assess hematopoietic stem and progenitor cell function following azacytidine treatment showed decreased mutational complexity and a potential shift in hematopoiesis from clones with high to clones with low mutational burden. However, it is unclear how these assays correlate with the in vivo hematopoietic potential. In addition, whether highly mutated HSPCs can mature normally in response to azacytidine or whether there is increased output from cells with fewer or no mutations is an important unresolved question within the literature. To address this question, the authors in the current study used index sorting and single-cell genotyping to characterize the somatic mutations in individual stem and progenitor cells, as well as in circulating monocytes, neutrophils, and B-cells isolated from patients with MDS and CMML. Patients were studied before and after azacytidine treatment. In addition, they assessed variant allele fraction in both progenitor and mature cells in responders and non-responders to azacytidine. Patient samples were collected, and bone marrow was enriched for CD34-positive cells before further processing. Mutations in single cells were amplified using a multiplex PCR-based strategy and capture sequencing was used to detect a panel of myeloid driver mutations. Although the authors initially hypothesized that highly mutated clones would fail to differentiate into peripheral blood cells, quantitative PCR performed on samples from two CMML and one MDS patient harboring TET2 mutations revealed that clonal composition did not vary as hematopoietic cells differentiate from stem cells to myeloid progenitors and eventually into differentiated cells. 
This finding demonstrated that highly mutated HSPCs can differentiate into mature cells even in the absence of treatment. To understand how hypomethylating agents may influence clonal architecture, the authors analyzed a second cohort of nine patients before and after treatment with azacitidine. Again, the results at the single cell level confirmed that highly mutated HSPCs could differentiate into normal mature blood cells. Importantly, this was observed in both patients who responded and those who did not respond to azacitidine. The authors concluded that the mutational burden in HSPCs is proportionally reflected throughout hematopoietic differentiation in MDS and CMML. Moreover, improved hematopoiesis in MDS following therapy with azacitidine was associated with increased contributions from productive mutant progenitors. The only mutation that appeared to be unfavored during differentiation was the biallelic mutation in TP53, which led to clonal depletion by azacitidine. In an accompanying commentary, Sridhar Rao, from the Medical College of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, notes that the findings from the study by Schneg Kaufman and colleagues imply that highly mutated HSPCs can be induced to mature via treatment with azacitidine and that this ability is independent of clinical response. However, he also cautions that these conclusions are based on a small number of patients and that more extensive studies are needed to confirm them. Nevertheless, this work has important implications beyond the use of azacitidine in MDS and CMML. First, it highlights that not all findings from one myeloid malignancy can be applied to other malignancies. For instance, measuring response to therapy via minimal residual disease may not be applicable in MDS, at least as far as reversing cytopenia and long-term disease control is concerned. Second, as people age, clonal hematopoiesis dominates and is driven by a small number of HSPCs with a single mutation. Furthermore, while hypomethylating agents may improve cytopenias, they may not be effective at altering the clinical trajectory of the disease and its progression to MDS or AML. Rao concludes that collectively, this research highlights the need for larger prospective studies in patients with MDS, CML, and clonal cytopenia of undetermined significance, and for comparison of their clonal dynamics with other myeloid malignancies such as AML. Next up, we'll discuss the findings from the blood article entitled Determining Venous Thromboembolism Risk in Patients with Adult-Type Diffuse Glioma by Kirsten Bell-Burdett from Northwestern University in Chicago, Illinois, and colleagues. Deep vein thrombosis and pulmonary embolism are common venous thromboembolic events in patients with cancer. Studies to date indicate that between 10 to 30% of glioma patients experience at least one VTE event throughout their disease. The majority of VTE events in glioma are associated with surgical resection or adjuvant therapy. Other factors that may increase the risk of VTE include older age, large tumor size, prior VTE, leg paresis, and A or AB blood type, as well as the presence of intratumoral thrombosis. Interestingly, Prior research by this same group found that gliomas with mutated IDH1 may be associated with a lower risk of VTE than gliomas with wild-type IDH1 due to a lower expression of tissue factor. Despite the strong association of glioma with VTE, 
There are no reliable VTE prediction tools for patients with glioma. The Corona score, the most commonly used clinical prediction tool for VTE in cancer, did not include a sufficient number of glioma patients in its original study design. Furthermore, the use of VTE prophylaxis in glioma is complicated by prior indications of a potentially increased risk of brain hemorrhage during anticoagulation therapy. Thus, the optimal timing or duration of VTE prophylaxis in glioma remains unknown. In the current study, the authors aimed to develop the first risk prediction model of incident VTE in glioma based on clinical, blood-based, histologic, and molecular markers. The model was developed using data from a large experimental cohort of glioma patients and validated using two external cohorts. The discovery cohort consisted of 258 patients with newly diagnosed grade 2 to 4 adult-type diffuse glioma treated at Northwestern Memorial Hospital in Chicago. The two validation cohorts included 157 patients from Duke University and 68 patients from the University of California at Los Angeles. The mean follow-up time was 20.5 months across all cohorts, and the end of follow-up for all three cohorts was September 2021. 46, or 17.8%, of patients in the discovery cohort developed VTE. The rates of VTE in the validation cohorts were 5.7% and 13.2%, respectively. Tumor expression of tissue factor and podoplanin both correlated with VTE. However, only circulating tissue factor and D-dimers, and not podoplanin, correlated with VTE risk. Patients with IDH1 and IDH2 mutations had fewer VTE events. Multivariable analysis revealed that this finding is associated with the suppression of tissue factor, and not podoplanin, in patients harboring the IDH mutation. In a predictive time-to-event model based on lasso regression analysis in the discovery cohort, the following seven factors predicted increased VTE risk in newly diagnosed glioma. Prior history of VTE, hypertension, asthma, white blood cell count, tumor grade according to WHO criteria, patient age, and body mass index. On the other hand, mutations in IDH, hypothyroidism, and MGMT promoter methylation were predictive of reduced VTE risk. Using these 10 variables, the authors created an interactive web-based VTE prediction tool, which was validated in cohorts of adult-type diffuse glioma patients from two other institutions. The model worked well in both the discovery and validation cohorts. Factors associated with occurrence of VTEs in 145 patients with recurrent adult-type diffuse gliomas were also studied. The main findings were that intratumoral expression of tissue factor tended to increase in recurrent gliomas, whereas podoplanin was unchanged, and higher circulating tissue factor activity and D-dimers were associated with increased VTE incidence. Overall, this study extends our understanding of the factors influencing VTE in glioma and provides evidence-based guidelines for clinicians to mitigate the risk of VTE in this cancer. In an accompanying commentary, George Goshua and Alfred Lee from the Yale University School of Medicine in New Haven, Connecticut, notes that the study by Bell, Burdett, and collaborators should be commended for creating the first VTE risk prediction model following surgical resection of adult-type diffuse gliomas.
this model incorporates clinical, pathologic, and major molecular data that are both available and utilized in the clinical care. They add that a reevaluation of the model in the context of a competing risk framework may improve its performance, since patients without VTE in the current model were censored at the last follow-up, including those who may have died. Another consideration is that this analysis included only a subset of VTE events that occurred either after surgical resection for newly diagnosed glioma or before surgical resection of recurrent glioma, which represents two distinct clinical scenarios. Nevertheless, Gashua and Lee note that the study findings have several clinical implications. One is the potential for the targeted use of prophylactic anticoagulation in patients with a high VTE risk score and IDH1, IDH2 wild-type disease, which may offset some of the bleeding risks by selecting for patients who have high levels of circulating tissue factor. Another is that these latest findings raise exciting new questions about the complex pathophysiology of VTE in glioma and other cancers. In the final part of today's podcast, we will review an article in Blood entitled Biallelic Deletion of 1P32 Defines Ultra-High-Risk Myeloma, But Monoallelic 1P32 Deletion Remains a Strong Prognostic Factor by Anaïs Chavgulidze from Institut Universitaire du Cancer en Copole in Toulouse, France, and colleagues. Multiple myeloma is the second most common hematological malignancy in the Western world. In the past two decades, the advent of new therapies has led to a dramatic improvement in both progression-free survival and overall survival of most patients with newly diagnosed multiple myeloma. However, the lack of risk stratification in therapeutic decision-making has proven disadvantageous for patients with high-risk disease, whose overall survival remains below five years. The situation is similar for patients with an ultra-high-risk disease, whose overall survival is below three years. Studies to date have shown that cytogenetic abnormalities displayed by malignant plasma cells have a strong prognostic impact in multiple myeloma. Deletion 17P is believed to be the most unfavorable one and affects approximately 8% of patients with newly diagnosed multiple myeloma. The addition of three cytogenetic abnormalities namely deletion 17P and or T414 and or T1416 into the revised international staging system represents a major advance towards the improvement of risk stratification in newly diagnosed myeloma. In subsequent studies, additional cytogenetic and genomic abnormalities, including 1Q gain or amplification and TP53 mutation, have been associated with particularly poor outcomes following non-risk-adapted therapeutic strategies. Moreover, a study by Perot and collaborators recently found 1P32 deletion to be the second most adverse abnormality in myeloma, just below 17P deletion. The purpose of the current study was to assess the prognostic impact of 1P32 deletion in a large cohort of newly diagnosed multiple myeloma patients irrespective of the treatment received. Clinical information was obtained for 2,551 patients with newly diagnosed myeloma, treated in hospitals involved in the Intergroup Francophone du Myelome between 2010 and 2021. 
1,258 of 2,551 patients were treated with intensive therapy. All were followed for 36 months or longer, or had died or progressed within 36 months after treatment. Plasma cells were isolated from bone marrow samples using CD138-positive MAC sorting. Only samples with purity greater than or equal to 70% were kept for the analysis and analyzed either by next-generation sequencing, FISH, or SNP array. Deletion 1P32 was defined by the deletion of at least FAF1 or CDKN2C genes. Associations were drawn between cytogenetic abnormalities in 1P32 and overall survival and progression-free survival. Of 2,551 studied patients, 11% were found to have deletion 1P32. Moreover, the overall survival of these patients was significantly inferior compared to patients who did not harbor 1P32 deletion. The median overall survival was 49 months compared to 124 months. Similarly, progression-free survival was significantly shorter in patients with the 1P32 deletion compared to patients without it. Importantly, the authors found that biallelic 1P32 deletion conferred a significantly poorer prognosis compared to monoallelic 1P32 deletion, with a median overall survival of 25 months versus 60 months. In patients where 1P32 deletion was associated with either high-risk cytogenetic abnormalities, such as 17P deletion, T414, or GAIN, 1Q, overall survival was significantly decreased. Multivariate analysis revealed that 1P32 deletion had a negative prognostic value. After adjusting for age and treatment, the risk of disease progression was 1.3 times higher in patients harboring 1P32 deletion, and the risk of death was 1.9 times higher. The study authors concluded that these latest findings confirm the adverse impact of 1P32 deletion in the largest cohort of newly diagnosed myeloma patients ever evaluated and established the relevance of its assessment at diagnosis. In an accompanying commentary, Amit Kaot from the University of Melbourne in Melbourne, Australia, notes that the findings of Shavgulidza and collaborators highlight the importance of 1P32 deletion in identifying patients with newly diagnosed multiple myeloma who are high risk, since this finding was observed in a substantial portion of patients at diagnosis. The study also reaffirms the negative prognostic impact of multiple high-risk cytogenetic abnormalities and suggests that biallelic deletion of 1P32 may have a similar prognostic impact as the biallelic TP53 mutation, identifying an ultra-high-risk group of patients. Kaot believes that these findings should be considered in updated risk stratification criteria, as well as clinical trial design. For example, the Phase II Optimum MUC9 trial for ultra-high-risk patients included deletion 1P in the criteria for eligibility and showed a benefit for an intensified treatment approach using a quintuplet induction approach and consolidation with augmented ASCT and quadruplet combination therapy. An additional important finding was that the different platforms used for analysis, specifically FISH, SNP arrays, or next-generation sequencing, all performed equivalently, which will help in discussions aimed at standardizing methodology. However, he also cautions that this is a retrospective analysis of a large intergroup cohort of patients with limitations such as missing data. 
Thus, the importance of 1P32 deletion on patient outcomes should be confirmed in prospective clinical trials and accompanied by the analysis of other known genomic negative prognostic markers, mostly TP53 and 1Q amplification. Nevertheless, Coote is optimistic that the results of this study will be pivotal in the effort to accurately define high-risk and ultra-high-risk myeloma patients at diagnosis and disease progression. Listeners, CME questions for this article are available on the Blood website at cme.bloodjournal.org. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.